Well, some of you look like you fasted this week. Many of you look like you didn't fast this week. I, I got some, some messages from people this week who fasted, because that was a challenge last week as we wrapped up the series on prayer, that, that we would hunger more for the voice of God than even for food. And, and some of you think that's crazy. Some of you think um, you'd never want to try something like that. But when you see God come through and answer a prayer in a powerful way, it just makes you want more. There's a lady. She came into our Thursday morning prayer group. By the way, you're welcome to join us at 6 o'clock in the lobby. We meet for prayer. There was 13 of us there at 6 o'clock from 6 to 7 this past Thursday morning. Well, one of the ladies said she fasted for the first time for 36 hours, 36-hour fast, and it ended. And the very next day, her son who had left home, ran off to California, showed up on her doorstep. I don't know if there's a connection, but I tend to think God was at work in response to her prayers. You just never know what God's going to do when you hunger so much for him. If you weren't here, go back, listen to some of those messages um, dealing with prayer. We want to grow. We want to get better and better, more effective. Your family relies on the prayers that you're offering for them. Your friends around you, they can be affected in huge ways by your prayers. Don't underestimate the power of calling on God and letting God come into play at work in the lives of the people around you. Today, we're starting a new series on the book of Daniel. We'll be in this for the next several weeks. And one of the reasons why I chose the book of Daniel was because this summer, the Lord just convicted my heart of how much tension there is in our culture over this election. And people wondering, who's going to be the next president? Who's going to be the person in charge? And what's going to happen to to the world? And then we look around us and we see this culture that's unraveling, that's becoming more and more ungodly and hostile to Christianity. And we wonder, God, what are you doing? But if you look at the book of Daniel, it has a lot of parallels to today. The, the issues Daniel dealt with in many ways remind us of the issues we face today. So I hope you'll bring a Bible, you'll follow along with us as we go through the book of Daniel. Daniel is one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. There's, uh, there's Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and then there's Daniel. And Daniel's different than the other books. The other books record God's messages to an apostate people, the nation of Israel that had turned their backs on God. But by the time Daniel writes They've already been disciplined for it, and he's in the midst of learning lessons from it, and he looks forward to what's coming in the future. You might know some of the stories, like Daniel and the lion's den, one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. You might know the story of of, uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and how they were thrown into a fiery furnace. We're going to look at that story. But God's at work in the midst of this culture that seems so ungodly, and there's a message here for us today. If you're a teenager, you'd want to tune in. Because Daniel's a teenager. It's believed he's about the age of 15 when he gets carried off into Babylon where he stays for 70 years. He has some buddies, and, and they stand up for their faith in the midst of this ungodly culture. And you might be in a situation where you're the lone Christian in your school or you're outnumbered by a lot of people who don't love God like you do, and you wonder, how do I hold on to my faith? How do I take a stand for the Lord? Well, Daniel could teach you a lot about that. If you're a single person, you're like Daniel. As far as we know, Daniel never married. His friends never married, never had children. And as much as we talk about family and marriage in our church, that the strongest marriages and the strongest families can be boiled down to this issue. A man and a woman, or a man or a woman, has devoted themselves to following God. That's where it starts. And so if you're single, maybe a single parent even, you can do that. You can be that single person that says, I don't don't need someone else as much as I need the Lord. I need the Lord, and I'm going to be devoted to him. If you're in the military, you're going to find a lot of parallels with Daniel because Daniel gets 
shipped off to a country where he, he doesn't believe the gods they believe in. He doesn't understand their culture. It's very different. In fact, Babylon that we'll look at, Babylon is just south of modern-day Baghdad, Iraq. And if you've been in the military, some of you have actually served in that area. You know some of the historical sites of Babylon. If you're a believer who's been lax in your faith, you will learn from the Israelites who lost track of God and where that led them. If you're a believer who's been faithful to the Lord, you might be one of those who feels like, God, the world's spinning out of control. I'm the one that's kind of holding on to my faith, but everything else around me is unraveling. The world's getting very twisted and warped. It's crooked. I'm the one that's holding on to a firm faith, but where are you? It seems like you're gone. People are saying you're dead. What's happening? And if there's one message in the book of Daniel that, that goes from beginning to end, it is this, that God reigns. doesn't matter who's the king. doesn't matter who's in power. God reigns. That's why it doesn't matter who takes the Oval Office in our country. There is someone above every president. There's someone above every ruler in the Middle East. There is someone who says, I raise up rulers and I remove rulers. I'm the one in charge. God reigns. And even when you don't see it, he's still in charge. He's still on the throne. But it raises the real question for us, the question we have to wrestle with. If God is ultimately in control of the whole world, if God reigns, does he reign over me? Does he reign over this life? And that is where you and I cast our vote. It's not in November at the ballot box. It's today saying, saying, do I trust in this God? Do I believe in this God who has ultimate control or not? Because by the time we're toddlers, I've got a grandson who's two and a half, and I'm starting to see this in him. You start to learn to say, mine, and no. Right? And so we, we find this little rebellious spirit rising up, and, and it never goes away. Never goes away. All through your life, you're dealing with selfishness, self-centeredness, wanting to be the one in control of your life. And then you make these horrible mistakes, and you realize, I don't do a good job when I'm in control of my life. That's okay. God didn't intend for you to be in control of your life. He intended you to be surrendered to the one who's in control. That's why we call Jesus, get this, Lord, authority, my leader, my boss, the one who has all authority. All authority, Jesus said, on heaven and earth belongs to me. Not you, me. So have you submitted to that authority? I'll tell you what, when you surrender to the God who reigns, things in your life, no matter what's happening around you, things in your life begin to fall into place and turn out beautifully. And some of you need that today. You need to be reminded today that though your life seems to be unraveling and though the world around you is spinning out of control, there is one who can bring it all back under control. The one who put the stars into space, the one who causes the planets to orbit without going out, out of control, he wants to be in control of your life, and he cares about you. So I want to pray right now that God would speak to us as we go into this book of Daniel and that you would learn to trust him right where you are. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the message of Daniel that you included in Scripture, not just to learn history, but for us to learn the, the principles of how to follow you even today. So we ask that you, that you speak through your Holy Spirit into our hearts and prompt us, move us, challenge us to trust you deeply. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to start off reading the first couple of verses. 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of God. So if you don't know the history, I I just need to give you a, a lesson right here. Nebuchadnezzar is the king over Babylon. Now, he came to power because he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar had been the commander of his armies, a very great commander. And they began to defeat foe after foe. They defeated a number of powers, including the most powerful nation at that time was Egypt, overcame Egypt. And on their way back home to Babylon, they decided to take on Jerusalem as well. And the Israelites who lived there, God's people, had been based in Jerusalem, were taken hostage by the Babylonians. Not only were people taken, their king, but some of the articles from their temple, the valuables, gold and silver and bronze um, utensils used in the worship of God were taken and put in the temple, in the treasury of their gods. God's people had been in Jerusalem. I'm going to give you a little bit of history there. Um, after, this, after the reign of three kings, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, the kingdom then split into two groups. There was the northern group, which is called Israel, and it was composed of 10 of the tribes of Israel. And the southern group, southern group had two other tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But it was just called the tribe of Judah. For some reason, the dominant tribe got the name. So Israel was the northern tribe. Judah was the southern tribe. Assyria captured the northern tribes. God had sent prophet after prophet to tell the people they needed to repent. They needed to turn around. They needed to head back to God. And because they didn't, God allowed the Syrian, Assyrian army to come in and, and destroy them. Take them hostage. Now the Babylonians come and do the same thing to the southern kingdom, the the tribe of Judah, and they take them into their own culture. And in a series of three different deportations, the, the people are exiled into Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is a powerful king. He reigns for 45 years. 45 of the 70 years that Babylon was in power, he reigned for 45 of them. And he was magnificent. I mean, as far as culture goes, he was extremely powerful, highly, highly advanced in his, his understanding of, of development and technology and things. He had a moat built around the city. He had walls 25 feet th- thick, six miles uh, around, built around the city, um, hundreds of towers that were hundreds of feet tall, dedicated to his gods. He had probably the most famous thing that he did next to building his palace was the hanging gardens of Babylon, terrace gardens that were fed by water that was pumped hydraulically up to these various levels. Just, just beautiful, well-known, powerful. He's the one in charge here, and he's reigning, and the Israelites are taken captive. And when he took all those utensils from the, the Jewish temple and brought them into his God's temple, it was like he was saying, my God's better than your God. We win, you lose. And his gods included Baal and Ishtar and Marduk. And I wonder if the Israelites said, God, what are you doing? I mean, I thought we were your treasured people. How could this happen? Well, here's the dilemma God was in. God's ever in a dilemma. This is it. There's a people over here called the Babylonians that are pretty evil. In fact, when you get to the book of Revelation... The evil culture there is compared to Babylon, Babylon the great harlot. So here's Babylon, very pagan, very anti-God. And over here you have Israel, 
who has the temple, who has the prophets, who have the scriptures, who have the sacrificial system, the festivals, all those things that they grew up with. And yet God takes those people, brings them over to this pagan nation. Why? Why would God do that? Well, which is worse in God's eyes? A group of people who never claim to love God, who aren't serving God, or people who say they love God, who claim to be believers, who don't act like it. And I look at our culture. Sometimes we can be very critical of the culture out there and say, man, God, that culture out there, I mean, there's abortion and, and, and there's all kinds of evil out in the culture. We see it on TV and, God, you must be very angry with the culture. I don't know if God's angry with the culture. The culture has never pledged themselves to God. I think what God gets angry with is believers who say Jesus is Lord but don't live like it. And we need to look at ourselves in the mirror to say, God, what's... What am I doing to show that you are Lord? Because God, God's not opposed to allowing you to struggle and go through difficult times after you've said, no, God, no, God, no, God, to get you to a position where then you'll throw up your hands and say, yes, God. When God has lost our attention, he'll put us in a place where he can get our attention. Because ultimately, that's what he wants. He wants our attention. So here's what God does. This is, a, this is one of the, the key words. God delivered them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when I hear that word delivered, what I think of is a doctor delivering a baby. Or I think of the postman delivering a package. It's very personal. I mean, someone's actually taking care to bring this over here, and it says God delivered the Israelites into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It's like God said, okay, kids, load up in the bus. We're going for a ride and, and to see your mean Uncle Joe. And they drive it, drive off, say, okay, get out of the bus now. What I, what I read from that story is that God says, I'm not going to abandon you. Even though you've turned your backs on me, I promise I will never, ever forsake you or leave you. But here's what I'll do. I'm going to place you in another position for my purpose. God positions us for his purpose. And the position you may be in may not be a pleasant position. Maybe a very painful position. You look around you and you see chaos and corruption and go, God, why am I here? Why am I in this job? Why am I in this family? Why am I in this neighborhood? God, it's just, it's not godly. Why am I here? And God says, I position you there for my purpose. I position you there because I'm not as concerned with what's going on outside as much as I am what's going on inside. See, there may be chaos and corruption on the outside. I want to know, is there conviction and courage on the inside? What's in you? What's in you that's being exposed by what's around you? And that's what God's going to find out with what's inside of Daniel, what's inside of these other people. Sometimes we can't tell what's inside until we're placed in a very painful, uncomfortable Environment, And I know some people have trouble with that because you'd say, why would God put us in a painful place? I would never put my kids in a painful, painful place. That's why you would never make it as God. God will do things you'll never do because God's willing to pay a price to get us ultimately in the end back. He's willing to allow us to go through some very painful, difficult circumstances ultimately to get our attention back on him because he wants our faith to grow. He wants it to shine in the midst of that. His goal is to develop you, not destroy you. His goal is to develop you, not destroy you. And so we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying this prayer for his disciples. John 17, verses 15, 16. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. He's praying for his disciples. He says, God, Father, don't take them out of the world. 
I pray that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. He, he doesn't say, God, you know, get them out of the mess. Just save them from that mess. Deliver them from the mess. He says, no, just protect them from that bad guy, Satan. Because they're going to be in the world. But they're not going to be of the world. They're going to be exiles. What's an exile? Exile is someone who, who's placed in a land that's not familiar. They're removed from their place of comfort, their, their homeland, to another place. He says, these are, these are exiles. Do you know when the Bible talks of Christians, it talks about us as being aliens, sojourners, exiles on this earth? This is not your, this is not your forever home. You don't belong here. You're in the world, but not of the world. But we sometimes need to be placed in a position that's very uncomfortable, where there's a little bit of tension because that's where you grow the most. If you look over your Christian life, the times that you grew the most, the time that you sunk your, your roots the deepest were those painful, uncomfortable times. Now, we don't like it. We don't want those. We don't say, God, bring, bring, me, bring the pain on. Bring the difficulties on so I can grow. We don't want them. We don't ask for them. But they come. And it's in those times that we grow. It's kind of like muscles. You don't build muscles until you tear them apart. You got to go lift weights. You got to press. You got to go heavier. And when you do that... Those muscle fibers tear and they repair and they become stronger. You cannot grow faith without being challenged. Tension is a good thing. Tension develops character and strength. I remember a, a friend of mine, he was a roommate uh, one of my years in Bible college. His name was Chuck. Chuck was this just on fire believer. He'd come up through high school, found the Lord, was like a radical. Um, follower of Jesus in his high school, and then he comes to this Bible college, and I got to know him. I said, I really like this guy. I like his zeal for the Lord. Well, after a couple years of being in Bible college, Chuck became very, very um, placid in his faith, very cool and calm, and he just lost that edge. And I wondered, what happened to this guy? He came here so on fire, and, and he's surrounded by Christians here. And he's, and he's actually sliding backwards. By, by the time he left college, he was questioning his faith. Why, why was it happening? Here's why it happened. When he was in high school, he was one of the few Christians, and he stood out, and there was this tension. I've got to stand up for my faith. I've got to be different. But when you're in a, an environment where everyone else is, is kind of like you, you lose your distinctiveness. And everyone else starts to, starts to affirm your faith, not, not challenge it, not strengthen it, and you become lazy. When you have classes where it's, your class is about the Bible, Think, why do I need to read the Bible in my personal time? We talk about it all day long. Why do I need to pray? We had chapel, you know, three days a week. You know, all of a sudden you lose that zeal. But I'll tell you this. When you get into a place where you're the minority and things around you are chaotic, it drives you to your knees. You savor those times with the Lord. God wants us to grow, and sometimes he positions you in very difficult places because he's concerned with what's going on in you more than what's going on around you. That's why even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, not from the situation, but deliver us from who? The evil one. That's, that's a concern, is the evil one. The reason you are where you are right now is very likely that God wants to expose what's in you and to grow and develop your faith. So here's what happens. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. 
young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better uh, nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. When you're in exile, there are certain decisions you have to make. Certain decisions that you must make. First one, don't forget your roots. Don't forget where you came from. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had taken them out of Jerusalem, away from the promised land, the place where God dwelt, the holy city, moved them away. Not only that, but years later, he comes back and he flattens the temple. It's destroyed. And the temple for the Jewish person was the, the heart of their religious experience. I mean, the temple, the sacrifices took place there. It's gone. It's no longer there. They can't even go back home to it. It's been obliterated. So, Daniel, get over it. You're in a new place. It's a new period. It's a new time. So, learn our culture. Learn our literature. Learn our language. You're going to become a Babylonian. You're going to learn to worship our gods. But you know what, Daniel, Daniel could have been bitter toward God. He could have said, God, why are we in this place? Why would you allow us to be in this place? I'm mad at you. I'm so mad at you for allowing us to be here right now. He could have been bitter. He could have been bitter toward his fellow Israelites because maybe they were worse than him. Maybe Daniel was the faithful one and they were unfaithful and said, look at you guys. It's because of you that we're here. But, he, but we don't see any bitterness of heart. What we do find is Daniel is very devoted to the Lord. And we'll find out later that when Daniel prays, he gets on his knees to an open window that faces Jerusalem. Now, why does he do that? Because that's where his roots are. When I grew up as a little boy, every day at school, we'd say this Pledge of Allegiance. And we would say within that pledge, one nation under God. And I would look at the coins in my pocket, pennies and nickels, sometimes a dime or a quarter, and it said on those coins, in God we trust. My mother had a copy of the Declaration of Independence. And it says that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Their creator. Later on, they referred to him as the supreme judge of the world and divine providence. I remember seeing a president sworn in 
And as they raised their right hand, they placed their left hand on a book. And that book was the Bible. And, and I read about the history where it just, it, it just seems like God and faith and Christ and all that has been part of our culture from the very beginning of the establishment of this nation. And, and yet, a president comes along for the first time in history and says, we are not a Christian nation. Well, you know, when I look back and, and I read the documents, and I'd say, well, maybe we're not now, but we sure were at the beginning. I mean, John Adams, our second president, said the general principles in which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Most of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were seminary students. Thomas Jefferson, who sometimes is, is um, dismissed because he was a deist, meaning he, he didn't believe in an, a God that was involved in the world. Did you know Thomas Jefferson helped establish Sunday worship services in the U.S. Capitol? and that every Sunday he attended the service there? Don't tell me Christianity wasn't part of our culture. When certain laws are made and, and protected that we're not going to make certain laws on Sunday, we're not going to have certain things allowed on Sunday, certain stores cannot sell products on Sunday, why Sunday? Of all the days, why not Monday, Tuesday? Because Sunday was a day of worship for Christians. It is, it is absolutely clear, if you go back through our historical documents, that there was indeed a a support of Christianity as the guiding force. Now, our government said we're not going to enforce that. We're not going to force it on people. We're definitely not going to favor a denomination. But we make no bones about that, that our belief in God is part of our founding beliefs. And yet we're hearing today that that's not true, that that's not American history, and that we don't want any association. In fact, people are told today to take the name of God out of your valedictorian speech, tell your football players they're not allowed to pray, we just had a man recently on Clemson University campus. He was out on, on the grounds praying with somebody, and a school official came up to him and said, this is not a free speech zone. You'll have to stop that. I mean, our culture is getting so crazy. We are more defensive of, of, of religions in other countries, that they have a right to be a Muslim nation or Hindu nation, than we are of even saying that we're a Christian nation. Now, I'm not advocating that we necessarily have to put Christianity over the banner of the United States, but I do say this. We have roots here, and you never want to lose touch with the roots. There's a reason why the United States has existed over 200 years. There's a reason why God has given us favor around the world in many ways, and we're losing that because we're losing our grip on our roots. And, and Daniel determined, I'm not going to lose my roots See, even when you're in an environment that doesn't support your faith, you might ask yourself, is God still in charge? Can I still trust him? Has he forgotten us? Why does God allow this to happen? Know that he can be trusted, that God has positioned you for his purpose, and that you've got decisions to make. And one of those is not to forget your roots. Another one is not to lose your identity. Don't forget who you are. Daniel and all of his buddies were given new names. All the names that they possessed, the names like Daniel means God is my judge, Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is like the Lord. Azariah, the Lord has helped. All these names you hear, um, they all have God in them. And all the new names, Belshazzar. Daniel's called Belshazzar. means Bel, uh, protect the king. Bel was the name of one of their gods. Shadrach means command of the moon god. Meshach means who is like the moon god. Abednego is servant of Nebo, another name of one of their gods. And so the 
what Nebuchadnezzar is telling them is leave beside your old name, the name associated with that God, and we're going to give you a new name associated with our gods. And yet Daniel never, never took that upon himself. I mean, sure, other people could call him Belshazzar, but when you don't open up your Bible, you will not find the book of Belshazzar in the Bible. You will find the book of Daniel. When he talks about himself, he says, I am Daniel. I am Daniel. That's who I am, and that's who God made me to be. And my parents, when I was born, wanted me never to forget my, my, my identity, that my identity is connected to God, and God is actually embedded in my name. You know, what's so scary today is as kids grow up, the culture is saying, you need, to, you need to discover your identity, not from God, from culture. You need to experiment with things. You need to try things. You need to listen to other voices. And so people are trying to color their hair or they're trying to do things to their body or they're trying to accomplish certain things or be known for things other than the fact that they are wonderfully and beautifully made in the image of their creator, that every child is made in the image of God and is valuable, and that is your identity. That's our identity. The culture says that's not good enough. You need a different identity, better identity. So join our group, join our gang, join our club, and you'll have an identity, and you try that for a season, and it doesn't fit well. And you need to just go back to the very beginning. You're formed by a creator God in his image. Don't lose your identity. All these things seem pretty harmless because nobody's getting tortured. Nobody's getting punished. They're just saying that, hey, hey, we want you to learn our stuff. We want you to take on these new names. And then there's another thing. We'd like you to... uh, to eat our meat and wine. And if you're a young man, see these guys are teenagers, they're good looking, they're handsome, they're smart. These are like five-star recruits. He says, okay, here's your, here's your card. You got a free pass to the king's table. And he has wine and steak. Steak? Yeah, as much as you want. Ribeye, T-bones, porterhouse, whatever you want. It's all there for you. You go, guys, this is the place we're in. We're in Nebuchadnezzar's home. We're eating his stuff. The wine, I mean, could it get any better than this? Thank you, God, for putting us in this place. And Daniel says, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Sounds too good. I'm not going to compromise on my values here, which is the third decision you have to make, to draw a line someplace and say, I will not cross here. See, what Daniel knows is the meat The meat that's being offered to them is meat that had been sacrificed to idols, sacrificed to their gods. And by eating the meat, you're basically saying, your gods are pretty good. I like your gods. Bring on the meat. And Daniel says, I'm not going to do it. That would defile me. And so he he doesn't want to eat the meat, but he's very respectful and says, hey, can I get a pass on this? And says, no, uh, you really need to eat it or you're going to be in trouble. You're going to get me in trouble. And he says, tell you what. And this is, a, this is a step of faith. You feed us vegetables and water, and after 10 days, compare our health with the health of the other guys. Now, notice all the other men, they were savoring over the steak. But Daniel and these three other buddies says, okay, we're going to eat the vegetables. I mean, that's, man, that'd be tough. 10 days, no steak, just vegetables, that's tough. But he says, that's what we're going to do. 10 days later, they come back, and they say, you guys look healthier. Your God has blessed you. He's honored you. And that's the point. There are times in your life where you have to draw a line in the sand and say, God, this is as far as I'll go. Regarding your language, I'm not going to use those words. That that defiles me to talk like that. 
I'm not going to watch those images, those movies. I'm not going to look at those magazines. That's the line I draw. That would defile me to go there. I'm not going to act in that way and practice those behaviors because I would not want to defile my, my walk with God. I want to honor God. And I have to draw a line right here. I don't care if even my Christian friends are all doing this thing. I'm not going to do it. Where do you draw the line? Where do your values say it stops right here? Hold to your values. Don't compromise them. And so Daniel and his friends not only get favor, they get rewarded for that because we read at the very end, pick up at verse 17, to these four men God gave. God delivered, Daniel resolved, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. He was there 70 years. 70 years. But did you get that ten times better? Was it just because he was innately smart? Or did God bless him? It says God gave him the ability. God gave him the wisdom. God, God rewarded them. So here's what God does. When God puts you in a place to grow your faith, he then equips you for his work. He puts you in a position for his purpose. He begins to, to press you and strengthen you and grow you as you resolve and make decisions. And as you make those wise decisions, those right decisions that, that cause your faith to grow, God then equips you, blesses you with something that only comes from him, divine support. Up until this point in history, we, would, we know nothing of Daniel. There's no mention of Daniel in any of the Old Testament. We don't know him as a hero, as a man of courage. We don't see him stand out until when? Until he's placed in Babylon. And it makes me wonder, had Daniel gotten very lazy about his faith until things were on the line, until the tension was there? Because it's in the darkness of Babylon that, that Daniel starts to shine. And sometimes God needs to put us in a difficult place to cause us to stand out for him. Where does a light shine best? In the darkness. And God often allows you to be placed in the place that you say, God, this is so dark. This school is so dark. This, this place where I work is so dark. And God says, I know that. I know that. Because you can shine a light in the darkness. Nobody will notice it in the light. They're going to see it in the darkness. And as you act in a way that's very different from the culture, you shine for him. In Philippians chapter 2, listen to what uh, the Apostle Paul writes about the call of believers. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. We live in a culture that's very negative, that's, that always complains and whines. And God doesn't want us to be whiners. He wants us to be winners. And a winner is someone who says, I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to argue. See, Daniel had a lot to complain about. He says, I'm not going to complain about it. I'm not going to argue with God about why I'm here. I'm going to let my light shine right where I am. And some of you are in a place right now. You're in a place that's testing your faith. You live in a crooked generation. It's trying to warp your faith. And God says, stay strong. Stand for truth. Stand for righteousness. Stand for me. 
And maybe you're in a school, a high school, an elementary school, middle school, where you feel like you're just in the minority. That's okay. You're in the military. You're in a unit. You're the only Christian guy or gal in there. That's okay. God's placed you there to be a light. Maybe you live in a neighborhood or you, you work at a job where people all around you don't like the Lord. They don't even claim to follow him. They use vulgar language, tell dirty jokes. God, and you say, God, why am I here? And God says, because you're the light I need there. You're going to shine best in the darkness. Maybe you're in a family where you're the only one who loves Jesus, or maybe you're even in a marriage, and you're the only one of the two that says, I want to honor God with my life. That's okay. God has you where you are to grow you and make you shine. Stop fighting God about why you're where you are and surrender yourself to him. Let him be king. Let him, let him reign over your life, and let him work through you to grow you and shine a light that points people to Jesus.